All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn Your English Podcast. In today's episode, I had a conversation with Professor Susan Hunston, who is a member of the Department of English Language and Linguistics and is also a professor of English Language at the University of Birmingham. She really enjoys research and teaching at all levels and she has been involved in the Pattern Grammar Project which emerged out of the Co-Build Project which is this idea of confirming this research confirming that natural language is actually made up of recurrent patterns in which lexical and grammatical information is intertwined. So if you're interested in the lexical approach, I am very sure that you would enjoy listening to this podcast. We talk a little bit about language learning, understanding, accuracy, fluency, flexibility. We also talk a little bit about Sinclair's influence and Michael Hoey, um, who have also done work in the field of corpus linguistics. We also talk a little bit about the CoBuild project, her, her current book, Pattern Grammar, how she conducted research for that book, problems in identifying a pattern, knowing when a pattern is a pattern, when a pattern is not a pattern. Anyway, I thought it was a really good conversation. I have learned a lot and I hope you learn a lot too. Hey guys, I'm Sophia Shanahan from Venezuela, living in Canada, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. First of all, I would like to start by talking a little bit about your teaching background. I, I know you started in the classroom, so how you got into language teaching and how you developed this interest in corpus linguistics. Yes, well, um, I have to go back a very long way. Um, when I first graduated as a, a, an undergraduate, um, I did uh, the British voluntary service overseas and I was sent to the Philippines to teach English, which I did. Um, and I got very interested then in language and teaching language. Um, and so um, I took that up as, a, as my first career. Um, but then I got more interested in the research side of, of things. And so um, I stopped teaching English as a second language and started to do focus more on research and teaching linguistics. Um, and that's really what I've been doing for very much longer than I originally taught, taught the language. 
Mm. Uh, and what I'm interested in now is you said that you, you transitioned from, from teaching the language into researching the language. What, what's, do you, can you remember exactly what was the, the, that moment that sparked your interest in, in making this transition? I think it was, I mean, my first interest in research was in discourse. And it really was when I was marking students' written work, trying to encourage students to write. And I was seeing things that I wanted to talk about in their written work, about the structure of their essays, that didn't seem to be accounted for in any of the books I was reading, any of the course materials I was using. Mm -hmm. And so it was really wanting to investigate those aspects of students' written discourse that led me into my first um, research project, which was a master's by dissertation. Um, so that was why I started doing that. Um, then uh, I, I, that led me into getting very interested in the notion of evaluation and what, in that case, what students do when they evaluate something. Um, but that led me into uh, my second project, which was my PhD, which was evaluation and scientific discourse. Um, so I chose something which at the time seemed quite impossible which was to find the evaluative meaning in non-evaluative scientific discourse um, <laughs> so uh, I, I tackled that as a, as a difficult problem um, and it was only quite a bit later that I got involved in corpus linguistics um, but I can tell you exactly how that happened because, oh, please do um, I was working at the University of Surrey and I invited an old friend, Jill Francis, to come and give a talk to the linguists there. And she had just started working on the Colville project and she brought some of the materials she'd been working with in the form of concordance lines. And when I saw the concordance lines, um, I, I described this as falling in love. <laughs> and that's almost true. Um, I just looked at the concordance lines and the kind of patterning you could see in those concordance lines. And I said, this, this is what I want to do. This, <laughs> this is the research that I want to do now. Um, because I thought it was you know, so appealing to have language presented in that way. And I guess you're, you know, some people would have the same reaction looking at concordance lines and other people would look at them and say, yeah, I don't see the point. <laughs> yeah, so it is, Absolutely. It's just one of those things. I, I would definitely agree with you on that. I remember, I think the first time I came across concordance lines, I, again, a lot of the people that I was working with at the time couldn't see beyond a wall of text, mm -hmm. whereas I could see a lot of um, opportunities to explore things that, as you said earlier, um, are not actually described um, in textbooks, you mentioned something about the like the language that students use to evaluate. Uh, so I don't know if you remember any of this, but perhaps you could give us some examples of of the the language that you couldn't find in these textbooks, the language that you found in their essays, and that you wanted to do some sort of investigation, um, further investigation. I mean, 
Well, what I was looking at in the student essays was uh, what I think would be called um, semantic coherence or something. So mm -hmm. the fact that the students really should have a consistent evaluative voice through their essays. But when I did the research on it, um, what, one of the things that I observed was that uh, in scientific discourse, the way that somebody is reported is very important. So the difference between saying according to mm. Gomez or as Gomez says, or uh, Gomez claims, points out, all of these things are very, very significant in scientific discourse. And nowadays, this is kind of well known and mm. teachers would teach this, but back then it wasn't well known. But it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, it was um, one of the crucial things in, um, in, in the scientific discourse. Uh, and one of the things that I pointed out was that the way that concepts are set up in that way then determines what will count as an evaluation of them. Mm. So if you, if you do something very banal, like report a method of doing something in the lab. If you then say that you found something, you are actually also evaluating the method as having been successful. Mm. So there's a, a highly implicit value system running through the whole of scientific discourse. And part of the value system is that it's not explicitly openly subjective um, so it's all quite subtle um, but as a teacher of EAP you'll know that this sort of thing is very important to teach students because they are always expressing an opinion whether they mean to or not and the important thing is that they express the opinion they want to express and not accidentally express some different opinion. Mm -hmm. That's, no, this is very important, especially because, as you said, um, our students are using this language, but I find that a lot of the EAP materials that we have currently don't really emphasize the importance of evaluating language, of making those choices, because I think ultimately what grammar does, or again, I don't see the dichotomy. I, to me, grammar and lexis are seen as one. But it, what I don't see, Susan, is this idea of how we can actually look at that language and help students produce this evaluative language. I think that we're still lacking um, the materials and the resources to proper introduce this to students because most of the time what we're doing is we just teach them those reporting verbs. We just teach them those phrases with very little um, consideration as to how using or making certain choices will change the entire discourse. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree with you. And one of the, I mean, one of the things that then links it to grammar is um, that pattern which has the word as in it. So mm. see something as, interpret something as, dismiss something as, which is a very distancing kind of structure to, mm. to use. Um, and so students do have to, writers in general, have to be aware of the 
significance of um, I remember one example I had was see some see that so the researcher saw that mm-hmm. case where as a writer you're agreeing with that researcher you're right. saying you know um, he saw right. that the earth was round or whatever right um, Whereas see the researcher saw something as something, you as a writer you're very distanced from that. So he saw the moon as made of cheese. Um, the writer is distancing themselves from mm. that opinion. Mm. And so you've got through the you've got the same verb see, but through your choice of complementation pattern, right? It's either writer commitment or or not. Right. Uh, so it's these nuances of meaning that I think we're lacking mm-hmm. in terms of um, addressing the gap in EAP. Again, as I said, I feel like we're just really giving students a lot of these verbs, but we're not helping them understand the, the, micro, in, like the micro patterns within those, those verbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you said, so going back to corpus linguistics and your... Um, love at first sight with concordance <laughs> lines. Um, so going back into your first book, um, the one that you wrote, I think is in 2002, Corpora and Applied Linguistics, which again is a phenomenal introduction to Corpora. Um, anyone who's interested, I think it's, it's a very good um, start. Um, I wanted to ask you ever since then, what observations about language has Corpora made possible for for teachers, for students, for lexicographers? I think it's the, um, it's the patterning uh, of language and the obverse of that, which is the variability of language. Um, John Sinclair said, um, language, it was something along the lines of, um, language is much more patterned than we think, but also, fixed phrases are much less fixed than we think. So um, it, it's always been known that, you know, there is grammar, there is lexis, and also there are phrases uh, such as idioms and uh, phrase, frames, two words like of yeah. course, and on the other hand, and all those sorts of things. Um, but what he pointed out was that there's this whole mass of stuff in the middle where you get words that disproportionately occur in with other words in collocation um, or in particular series of meanings and um, I think this is the thing that is endlessly fascinating mm-hmm. um, and it, it can be I think for the teacher it can be a a bit of a double-edged sword because in a sense what you're doing is increasing the capacity of the learner to get things wrong because the more detail you add on this the more you're saying and if you do it differently you're getting it wrong which is increasing the amount of punitiveness <laughs> that, we, that we exert over students um, but on the other hand uh, it does offer the student um, the ability to to investigate language for themselves for one thing 
and to get a greater insight into why something sounds natural and something very similar to it doesn't sound natural. Absolutely. Um, and I think it was Tim Johns who said that research is too, too good to be left with a researcher. It's too think important it, to be left yeah. to the researcher, yes. I, I, I strongly agree with that. I think we should be encouraging students to, to analyze language. And again, I find that myself, having learned English um, as a second language, I find that one of the things that I did without consciously thinking about it is I've always looked at language as patterns, almost like a matrix in my head. And I remember the first time I came across um, Sinclair's work and the idea that language, as you said, is more pattern than we think. That's when things start really connecting. And I realized that a lot of the way, a lot of the things that I was doing, learning the language, learning English as a second language in that case, was through the works of pattern grammar without knowing that I was actually doing pattern grammar. We're going to get into that in a second. But Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about your main influences in the field. I know you have worked under the supervision of Michael Hovey, who wrote Patterns of Lexes in Text, and I think it was in 1990s. And his other book was The Lexical Priming, with the priming theory in language teaching. Um, can you describe your experience working with, with Michael Hovey, as well as uh, Sinclair, as you mentioned? And Yeah. Um I mean, my, I was supervised by Michael Hoey for my PhD, and that, at that point he was working on um, discourse analysis rather than um, corpus linguistics, um, uh, as indeed so was I. So um, the main influence there was actually his work uh, on problem-solution patterns in text. Um, because, of course, that is all to do with evaluation. You know, a situation is evaluated as a problem, um, a response is evaluated as positive or negative, uh, and so on. Um, and then um, I think Michael Hoey and myself almost simultaneously were then influenced by John Sinclair's work on the Cobill project. Um, because he became very much more interested in corpus linguistics and persuaded uh, HarperCollins, the publisher, that uh, producing a new kind of dictionary that was um, based on corpus uh, analysis would be a bestseller, um, as indeed it was. Uh, so he, he was entirely right there. And... Um, uh, Michael Hoey developed the notion of the importance of words uh, and the patterning around individual words. And he extended that in his lexical priming book, I think, um, beyond actually what John Sinclair had done, because John's work was very much on the immediate patterning of words. Right. Um, whereas Michael Hoey took this out into um, text and, and words which predominantly occur at the beginning of paragraphs or not at the beginning of paragraphs. And, mm -hmm. um, so really taking it even further than, uh, than John Sinclair had taken it. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to talk a little bit about the problem-solution um, 
idea, especially because I think a lot of our listeners are probably not quite familiar with that term. So I want to make sure that they understand what you mean by that. I think a lot of teachers would be interested in that as well. Yeah. Well, this was an idea uh, of Michael Hoey's. He uh, observed that very many texts in English follow a pattern of setting out a situation identifying an aspect of that situation that is a problem, um, offering a solution to that problem, and then evaluating the solution as having been successful or not. Um, And if you look at, for example, article introductions, which we know um, often say, this is the field I'm going to, to investigate, Uh, Other people have investigated this, but here is a question they haven't answered, or here is why their efforts have not been successful. And then this is what I'm going to do, and it's going to to work. And that sort of pattern in introductions um, happens quite, you know, it's it's often found. Um, It's even found in advertisements where, you know, people identify, the advertisement identifies a problem, which typically you didn't know you had, and then it tells you, right, this is the problem, and then you take this medication, or you use this shampoo, or you do whatever it is, and and it will solve solve your problem. Um, And uh, Hoey then went on to identify a number of other what he called culturally significant patterns of text. Um, And again, they are really important for learners because uh, one of the things he pointed out is that if you get um, an idea being described as commonly held or many people believe this, as a, a reader of English, we would know that we're actually not supposed to believe this. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if a text starts, it's commonly believed that, um, you pretty well know that the next thing you're going to be told is, but this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Actually, something else is correct. So uh, people for whom reading English might be quite a slow process, so they don't just skim through a text, they have to go sentence by sentence. Um, it's important to know that if you're told that something is commonly believed, the chances are you're not supposed to believe it. So don't start writing that down as the truth. <laughs> Wait till you get to the word however, and that is when you're going to start to be told the thing you're supposed to believe. Uh, so I think those, those yeah. patterns and the, the general... Um, uh, underpinning notion is that English text often goes um, positive, negative, positive, negative. So there's a problem, there's a solution, there's a question, there's an answer, there's a this is what people believe, this is what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of movement of, of oppositions uh, is, a, is an important organizing feature, organizing I think principle. That's great. Um, I think my question, Susan, is why we're not really addressing this issue in the classroom, why there is very little emphasis, materials that actually teach students to look 
a language to evaluate, to look at a paragraph and understand that this is a pattern of text. Because I believe that if students were taught this more explicitly, then I think they would have a much better understanding of how text is organized in English. And therefore, they would be able to, again, it's, it might be a bit of an overstatement here, but they might be able to produce better text understanding the cultural expectations mm. of that specific language. I suppose one reason why it isn't there is there is a kind of disconnect maybe between the research and people who are producing the textbooks um, and, and indeed teachers. It's, it's often difficult. I mean, teachers have a difficult enough job teaching and doing all the things they have to do around teaching without suddenly starting to read rather dense academic prose in order to keep up with, um, uh, with research. Um, so I think there is a need that is being addressed in some cases, I think, of people who write academic articles being encouraged to do short summaries that teachers right. um, might have access to. I think I talked to Dr. Patsy Lightbound about that and she mentioned that there is a, I think it's called Oasis, where they're actually encouraging um, mm -hmm. um, researchers to do that, to write these one page summaries um, for teachers. This is, this is all great work. Um, so I want to jump now and explore a little bit more um, Sinclair. You mentioned a lot of uh, Sinclair in your book. You, you talk a little bit about the corpus concordance. Um, collocation in your book and you talk about um, Sinclair's influence. One of the things that I really liked, uh, and I think it's a quote in your book, he says that there is ultimately no distinction between form and meaning. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to us? <laughs> well, what, the, where I think this comes from mm. is uh, the work that was being done on the dictionary. Right. So this is the Coville Dictionary. This is uh, the, the early editions, one in the 1980s, one in the 1990s. Um, and what was constantly happening was that if the, um, if the lexicographers noticed that a word was being used in a particular way, um, that that pattern of language would co-occur with a particular meaning. Mm. Um, and so when you have words that have different meanings, you know, a word that has several meanings, um, they're, usually, they're very often distinguished by form. So an example that Sinclair often gives is uh, the word lap, L-A-P, um, which has two meanings. One is a circuit of the track and one is part of the body. And if it's used with uh, a number, first lap, second lap, it's always the circuit of the track. Right. And if it's used with a possessive, it's always the part of the body. Right. Now, you can make a, you know, you can work really hard and make up a sentence where that's not true. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, you can say um, uh, Schumacher went round the track in four minutes. My lap was a great deal slower. I mean, you, you know, you can you can work hard and make up things that disprove the rule. Yeah. Um, but 
by and large, um, you, uh, you find that works. Um, another example would be something like um, the word reflect. This is one of Joel Francis's favorite examples um, where uh, it can mean uh, think about, mm -hmm. um, in which case it's reflect that, reflect mm -hmm. on, um, or it can be the mirror sense in which it will be probably passive and followed by in. So uh, his face was reflected in the water or the pool or something. Okay. Um, Mm. And so the, there isn't a sort of random association between meaning and form. Mm. Um, and if you take that to its absolute extremes, you would say, as John Sinclair said, there's no distinction between form and meaning. Now, no distinction is probably overstating the case somewhat. Okay. And <laughs> one, of, one of the things that... <laughs> he liked to say was that it's always best to make a very strong statement that <laughs> is proved because it's better to make a strong statement that then that can that can be disproved than to make a wishy-washy statement that's that correct it'll be either right or wrong let's take a quick break we'll be right back Hello friends, this episode of Teacher Talking Time is brought to you by English Central. English Central is by far one of the best source for textbooks and resources in ELT. I don't know about you, but I've been going there for about 15 years. And whether you're an institution or instructor, they have a great selection for you from business to general to academic English and even test prep. So if you're a teacher looking to develop, they have tons of great PD books as well including two friends of ours who have been on this podcast, Mr. Marek Kikoviak with Teaching English as a Lingua Franca and Neil McCutcheon who released Activities for Task-Based Learning. Check out the English Central online at englishcentral.net or if you're in Toronto, they're right at Young and St. Clair Avenue. Talk to Nicole. She'll be more than happy to chat with you. Now, let's go back to the show. What's up, everyone? My name is Johan, and I'm from Vietnam. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. John Sinclair said there's no distinction between form and meaning. Now, no distinction is probably overstating the case somewhat. Okay. And one of, one of the things that <laughs> he liked to say was that it's always best to make a very strong statement is <laughs> proved because it's better to make a strong statement that then that can that can be disproved than to make a wishy-washy statement that's that correct it'll be either right or wrong it would definitely get people thinking about it yeah finding yeah. ways to disprove what he said yeah. it encourages discussion encourages research it encourages more more thinking indeed and it and it perhaps enables you then to say um well, under what circumstances is that true? Mm -hmm. And under what circumstances is not true? So you refine the statement so that it becomes more and more accurate. Um, so anyway, that's what he meant, I think. Okay. There's no distinction between form and meaning. As I say, the extent to which that is actually literally true is perhaps open to discussion. But 
it's um, certainly true that to a large extent. Okay. Difference in form, difference in meaning. I would say that now, when we look at language now, I think I feel like there is a we're moving away. I think the pendulum in language teaching is has been swinging from um, grammar to lexis, and then we had form and function. It's always moving back and forth. And I find that now there's a notion, this notion of treating language in chunks actually comes from Sinclair when he developed the idiom principle theory. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what it entails and how it applies to how languages are learned, taught, and more importantly, analyzed? Yeah, I, th I think that's a big question, and I've seen it. I've seen it discussed in different um, in different guises. Um, one of the, one of the points that's made, I think, is that if you want to learn a language, um, if you remember a chunk, uh, so I think it's Leo Sullivan who says, yeah. um, if you have something like uh, I haven't, I haven't seen him for ages. If you remember that as a as a fixed chunk, I haven't seen him for ages. It will remind you that um, if you use the phrase with four, you need to use I haven't or I have. Mm -hmm. And so the next time you're trying to think how you want to say something like that, you would perhaps remember your fixed phrase. Yes. And then um, uh, extrapolate from that to what you what you actually want to say. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit different to the notion of the idiom principle. Okay. Because I think the idiom principle is about an analysis of language rather than knowing how it's taught necessarily. Okay. Um, and the idiom principle is about basically phrases in language that don't mean what you think they might mean if you look at the individual bits of them. Right. Uh, so my favorite example at the moment is um, have your cake and eat it, <laughs> which doesn't have anything to do with eating cakes. <laughs> Absolutely. Or it's selling like hotcakes, which Absolutely. is one that I definitely use with my students. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, there is, of course, also um, within uh, psycholinguistics and cognitive linguistics the notion that what we have in our brains is actually chunks of language mm -hmm. which are then analysed, um, which is a whole other matter and something that has to be studied via you know, empirical testing of informants and mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that I don't do at all. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, I look at language output and not, not what's in the brain. Right. <laughs> Don't do brains. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that to the zombies. <laughs> They'll deal with the brains. Mm, okay. Um, so when we look at idiom principle, as you said, it's, it, it, what it really does is it really helps us analyze language. It helps us um, look at these, um, as you said, chunks these phrases doesn't really apply always to um teaching and learning as i feel like what we do in language teaching sometimes is we borrow some of these concepts and we kind of try to incorporate them into um 
language teaching. Um, and I, I, well, I think one of the biggest criticisms regarding the idiom principle is, again, we, we know that it's, it's a valid position when analyzing the phenomenon of collocation. But one of the things that I have read in recent papers and research is that it doesn't really solve the problem for open choice issues. Again, not all language use can be um, subsumed under the idiom principle. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, I mean, it's quite true. I mean, I mean, Sinclair's position was that um, language can be analysed either according to the idiom principle or the open choice open. principle. Can you and, talk about the open choice as well too? Well, yes, I mean, he, he said that when he, he really took it from the point of when we understand language rather than when we produce it. Right. So he said that when we understand, when we hear something or read something and we understand it, we understand our first option is to treat it as an as uh, according to the idiom principle. Right. So, um, he made the point that most words in English are multi-meaning, are polysemous. Mm -hmm. And he did some calculation that if, if you took a, word, a, a sentence of seven words and you had, no, I, you had no way of working out which meaning of each word you should take, then you would have to, your brain would have to go through something like right. 300 possible meaning you know it's some ridiculous um, calculation which obviously people don't do so what people actually do is they operate a kind of let's assume that an idiom principle is operating unless that doesn't work in which case you go back to the open choice principle but it's certainly the case that an awful lot of language it is produced is produced on the open choice principle and not the idiom principle. But I think this is where something like um, pattern grammar does help because um, a lot of uh, a lot of words um, have fixed complementation patterns um, so if you take a word like um, he recovered from mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to follow unless the previous discourse has told you so it could right. be measles it could be a fit of depression it could be a conversation with his boss it could be all, all sorts of things um, but uh, the fixedness of that is the co is the co-occurrence of recover and from, um, right. um, and that tells you that what you're not going to get, uh, what you're going to get is the negativity thing following the word from, whereas if you have recover and then a noun you're going to get the positive thing. So you mm -hmm. can recover good health, recover your good spirits, recover the money that you lost. Right. Um, and so knowing whether you've got recover followed by a noun phrase or recover followed by a prepositional phrase beginning with from tells you how to, again, how to evaluate, how to right. understand the thing that comes afterwards the noun phrase yes um 
so it isn't anywhere near as as fixed as the Indian principle would uh, would lead you mm -hmm. to believe. Um, it's more open choice principle, but even that open choice is not as open as it, again. It's not just random co-occurrence of words. And I think that becomes the problem because, I, as I see now, is because collocations have become so widely popular in ELT, what I see now is our stu students using collocations but not really paying attention to the prosody of certain um, expressions. Right. So what we see is a student using, for example, recover from, and normally it has a negative prosody, as you said, the negative evaluation. Um, and I find that what we have is students using recover from, let's say, well, this is a weird example, but recover from a miracle, which is something that we wouldn't really use it um, that way. So I think that's, that's what I think we need to start looking into um, doing more research and bring this into the classroom is, is this idea of, of prosody. Um, so what I wanted to ask you now, and I forgot my train of thought here, but I got so into what you were saying that I completely lost um, what I was going to talk about now. Oh, yes. Um, so you've mentioned, um, You've mentioned Sinclair. You've you've mentioned a couple of times the Cobuild project. So I'll, I'll just tell everyone what the Cobuild project is. It's a large-scale um, lexicographic analysis of English corpus data. And again, this work has been pioneered at uh, the University of Birmingham, where where you currently work. So the idea is that this research is confirming that natural language is made up of these recurrent patterns in which lexical and grammatical information is intertwined. So. What I was going to ask is, how did the Cobuild project influence influence your pattern grammar research and pattern grammar um, writing? Uh, well, it entirely uh, inspired that work. Okay. Um, so John Sinclair had started the Cobuild project with HarperCollins Publishers, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, at the University of Birmingham, and um, he was. Uh, developing this dictionary, which would be corpus-driven, mm -hmm. um, based entirely on, on the analysis of corpus, which at the time was unknown. It's now what every dictionary writer does, but at the time it, it well, was the first. You're still the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and uh, in the process of doing that, um, obviously, the lexicographers were uh, observing the grammatical behavior of, of every word that they looked at. So this was everything from noticing whether a noun was count or uncount, um, also noticing whether a noun was frequently followed by a that clause or mm. a clause, or a particular prepositional phrase. And um, in the first edition of the dictionary, the one in the 1980s, they were using the traditional nomenclature, sub, you know, verb, object, ditransitive verb, all of these sorts of things. When it came to the second edition of the dictionary, um, my colleague Jill Francis was brought in to formalize in a rather different way the patterns of use um, of all the words in the dictionary. And shortly afterwards, I came along and joined her. 
So we both had the wonderful title of senior grammarian, um, which was rather less impressive when you realised there was only her and me. So there were no <laughs> grammarians for us. To... <laughs> um, but what we did was we um, devised uh, a coding mm. for every word in the dictionary, and there are a lot every, of them. Every word. Every wow. meaning of every word has. Uh, a pattern nomenclature uh, associated with it. Some of this is very boring, <laughs> it has to be said. Um, if you take a preposition like in, mm. the preposition will be followed by a noun phrase. This is because this is how you know it's a preposition. So the pattern is going to be prep n because that means preposition and then noun phrase. Wow. Um, this is not exciting, but it does mean that you code everything in the dictionary. Just out of curiosity, how many words? Ah, um, <laughs> I'd have to go and look up the dictionary. Just... How many? It's thousands. I mean, it is thousands. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And, um, so, well, I'm glad you're impressed because it, it felt an impressive task. So we, um, what we did was we, um, uh, we did a sort of handbook for the lexicographers that said, right, these are the patterns that you're looking for. Because it, it, when you start, of course, every pattern is new. But mm -hmm. after a while, you realize that, again, there are unlimited numbers of patterns. And so... Each word class will have a fixed set of patterns that it is used with. Uh, so a determiner, for example, like uh and the the, again, the pattern is boringly simple. It's followed by a noun, because yeah. that's how you know it's a determiner. And there may be a couple of adjectives in between, but basically it's determiner noun. Mm -hmm. um, so there your task is very easy. When it comes to adjectives, there are about 50 adjective patterns. Hmm. Um, and again, it's, once you know it, it's not difficult because these yeah. are either a clause, that clause to infinitive, ing clause, wh clause, right. or they're the prepositions. And there are only so many prepositions in English. So there's adjective right. at, adjective by, adjective in, adjective on, and, mm -hmm. and so on. So it's, it's relative, and then nouns that are, that are about 50 patterns, verbs that are about 100 patterns. So it's a, it's a big task, but a, a limited one. Um, and so we produced the handbook and trained the lexicographers. They then, as they went through doing that really difficult task, and believe me, I could not be a lexicographer to save my life. What was the task? Well, they had to take each word, they had to find the different meanings, they had to write oh. a definition, uh, find examples of each meaning. <laughs> and then um, they were asked to put in the grammar coding for each example that they oh, found. Oh boy. Um, Sounds like a lot of work. That's <laughs> there were a lot of them. Okay. And then, and then all those files came to Jill and myself and we checked mm -hmm. the grammar coding and changed things and said, no, they've got this wrong. And huh. uh, 
yeah, basically edited the, the grammar. So we've been talking about, oh yeah, go ahead, you're going to say something. Well, so that, that was the, that was the dictionary project, um, but because the lexicographers had used this consistent set of mm. grammar codes, it meant that we could then do computer searches of the database mm. and find all the words that shared a particular pattern. Um, and so we did this extensively for verbs, adjectives, and nouns, and produced two books, which are now, um, the books are not available, but the material in them is available on the website that you're going to give a link to. Yes, it's the grammars.collinsdictionary.com slash grammar dash pattern. <laughs> yes. yes. Great website. I've been using it quite a lot lately. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very excited that, it, that that all that research that that went on has now actually been made available again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking about grammar patterns. So let's get to um, the crux of the issue here. What is pattern grammar then? You talked about nouns, verbs, adjectives. So how would you define pattern grammar? Well, it's the... It's the grammar that surrounds each individual word and is there because of what that word is. So if I can I describe it best by, a, by an example. Mm -hmm. um, if you take the verb decide and you said something like, um, I decided to go out for lunch. Mm -hmm. um, the word I is not particular to the verb decide. Right. That's a subject of a verb. So from the point of view of pattern, we can actually ignore that because we say it's not part of it. Um, the phrase go out for lunch is not connected to the, um, to the verb decide because you can make a decision about anything. Right. Painting the walls yellow, eating something, writing an essay, whatever. But the thing that is particular to the verb decide is the two infinitive clause. Mm -hmm. Because you, you can only put certain verbs in that slot. Um, and there are other verbs that you can't put in that slot. Mm. Um, so the, there is a, a, what you might call a causal connection between the verb decide and the two infinitive. Mm -hmm. And so pattern grammar is describing a language in the form of establishing the link between the lexis and the grammatical environment. Okay. Because as you were speaking, I just Googled the word decide on the Collins Dictionary. And it, what we have here is the decide group. Um, these verbs are concerned with thinking or talking about how to do something or whether to do something. And as you said, with most of these verbs, the to infinitive is most frequently introduced by whether or how. But in the case of argue, it is most frequently introduced by whether. So what you're doing here is correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're doing is you're trying to lump all these verbs 
that follow a very similar pattern in giving students more choices. Would that be correct? Yes, yes. Um, so the, the pattern grammar would be individual to each individual word. Each right. word would have its own set of patterns that may be rather you know, mm -hmm. subtly different from any other word. But then if you take a particular pattern, you can bring together all the words that share that pattern and they will tend to have some commonality of meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and we think this is useful for learners because in a sense it cuts down on the learning task because there becomes a logic to why a word is followed by this particular preposition or this particular kind of clause. Um, so hopefully that, um, that does make the learning task a bit easier. Uh, and also it does act a little bit as a, like a kind of thesaurus mm -hmm. because you are yes. getting a list of words that mean, uh, that have this, this commonality of meaning. I think for the teacher, the, the, one important thing is actually to distinguish between, to be selective about those words because some of them are pretty uncommon. Right. So you, in these lists of words, you've got um, very common words and then rather uncommon words. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the verbs here. You have argue, um, debate, decide, determine, discuss, judge plan. It's interesting because you said this idea of functioning almost as a thesaurus. Um, I find that one of the biggest problems that students have when it comes to writing in an EAP environment is that they overuse a thesaurus. And what we have is they find a synonym for a very specific word and therefore they are under the impression that that word shares the same grammatical pattern. But that's not often uh, the case. Okay. Yes. Um, yes, there, I, I think you notice this too if you look in the dictionary, yes. uh, even a good dictionary, mm -hmm. where they'll give you a list of synonyms, but those synonyms actually cannot replace the word that you're looking at in all of its environments. Um, I, I also, I, I know I have experience too of, of students um, who, when they're writing a PhD thesis, they'll go to a thesaurus and you suddenly have some really bizarre word that <laughs> sort of means the same thing, but doesn't entirely mean the same thing, slotted into the, into the thesis. And you say, why have you put that word there? Well, I, I was tired of using argue, so I looked in a thesaurus for some word that meant something like it. Um, so that, it's always very, difficult I think very it's fraught with danger to say to students mm -hmm. here is of words that mean the same thing they don't mean the same thing but yeah. they have a kind of commonality they're in the same meaning area yes but there still has to be a great deal of caution um, but I think that you do you do cut out some of the problem if you see uh, the word as a phrase um, Yes. Than an individual phrase. Uh, so you've got attempt to do something, try to do something. Mm -hmm. These 
words if you if, if you go by the pattern you, you mm-hmm. cut out some of the problems it's funny because i was uh, for some reason i went back to like my childhood when i started learning english and one of the things i remember and which will lead to my question so it will be a, a very long uh, lead into <laughs> my question but i remember coming across the word for example afraid and understanding that afraid follow the pattern to be afraid of or to be afraid that of course there's nuances of meaning that change but i remember thinking be afraid of be frightened of and then overgeneralizing that to have a fear of and thinking to myself huh there is some sort of pattern here that i for some reason was able to generalize for myself for my learning purposes at the time and which i have been using over the years in my own teaching with my students and telling them don't just look at the word when you go to a good dictionary as you said susan try to look at the phrase how is that word being used in that specific um, phrase what's before what's after is it in the passive is it in the active is it in the past is it in the present so i think what this is leading to is two questions when is a pattern not a pattern and is it possible to overgeneralize patterns Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Howdy people, this is Ajita and I am from India. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learning Your English podcast. Two questions. When is a pattern not a pattern? And is it possible to overgeneralize patterns? Yes. Um, one of the, the thing about pattern is that you have to have this notion of dependency. Mm-hmm. And... Um, sometimes you get a prepositional phrase, for example, that's very commonly used with a verb, but which actually isn't dependent on the verb. Um, an example I've often used is the word, again, the word recover. Mm. Um, for example, he was recovering in the hospital. Now, the thing about in the hospital is that that is not actually dependent on recover. Um, this is just doing anything anywhere. <laughs> yes. Um, whereas recovering from, there is a much, you know, recovering from measles, there is a much closer connection between yes. the verb and the preposition in that case. And uh, one of our chief jobs as grammarians on that dictionary was to decide when words have that dependency. Mm-hmm. and when they didn't um, and it wasn't simply a matter of frequency I and mean, 
obviously oh. the more frequent something right. is, the more likely it is that it's there's a causal you know, causal connection. Right. Um, but there also is some kind of intuitive, I suppose, recognition of uh, of the dependency relation. Um, so that's a case where I think uh, pattern can be overgeneralized if if that's what you were getting at. Yeah, yeah. Sure. because what I find with students is once you show them this view, and I, I really, I try to be very explicit in my own teaching with my students and telling them like, try to look for these patterns, read a couple of examples. I even introduced them to more friendly corporate tools, scale, um, I came across a new one. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but I think it's called Flax, the Flex Library. It's a wonderful, um, it's called Flexible Language Acquisition. I can send you the link later. But what I like about this one is that it draws on the British National Corpus, and you can do research based on um, English and physical sciences, in social sciences, in life science. So you can actually look at patterns, at collocations within these. But the point was, Students tend to overgeneralize. Teachers tend to overgeneralize when, when we're looking at a pattern and thinking, as you said, uh, for example, with the recover example, you would say recover in home as opposed to looking at recover from a heart attack. But then if we were to overgeneralize, what's the synonym for recover? Recuperate. My normal assumption, my intuition would lead me to believe that recuperate would probably use the same position recuperate from so I think that's the part where I tend to overgeneralize and I, I tend to take risks when thinking about language um, that way and yeah that's yeah I, I mean quite often you can use the same pattern and you mm -hmm. can at least hypothesize that that pattern will be available um, I mean what do we do we say recuperated from the accident you can say that can't you it's not it's not wrong it's yeah i don't think it's wrong um yeah he's for example he's recovering from a heart attack he is recuperating, recuperating from, from a heart attack. Attack. it's just a more formal word right yeah. yeah yeah um and it's also of course used with suffering from suffering from yeah. uh, uh even dying from yeah yeah so so, so they know, would be all lumped is, in the same kind of generalizable but then then yes you do get things that don't work and the the very common example is suggest somebody to do something mm. so we say advise somebody to do something tell somebody to do something but not suggest somebody to do something although I do think that with changing English and international English this is actually going to change I I believe so too yeah I've, I've actually heard native speakers of a language is saying, I suggest somebody to do something as opposed to suggest right. doing something. But again, it's the overgeneralization of a pattern and... Well, yeah, and we did find in, in our research that um, patterns do change and when they change, they do mm. so by analogy with, with other words. Interesting. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I would... I. I'm not joking when I say that suggest somebody to do something may well be, be coming into the language. I think the question then is when does that become a mistake? When is that an, an incorrect use of the language? Because if they're using a pattern like I suggest you to do this, again, boring from the idea that they're probably relying on advise somebody to do something, which has a very 
similar meaning. Absolutely. When has that become a mistake then? I think that's the problem. Yeah. Um, and it's when, I mean, to my mind, suggest somebody to do something is still a mistake because it's just not commonly used enough yet. Yes. Um, but I mean, you you could ask the same question about less and fewer and mm -hmm. all sorts of yes. things like that. We are constantly, the language is constantly in this state of change and there's yeah. always going to be people who don't like one thing. And it just is a question of when does the majority decision become, this is, this is now um, acceptable usage. Yeah. But I don't, I think the... I mean, patterns do change relatively slowly, mm. I think. Um, but what's interesting, of course, is when you get a new word, it tends, or a word changes its meaning, it then adopts the patterns of the new meaning. Oh. Um, so, uh, I mean, and obviously, mm. um, when the word text came in, um, mm, right. Texting, um, it started to have the same patterns as write or tell mm. or send. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and another favorite example of mine is the word leak when it means um, leak information. information. Mm -hmm. Because it does then start to have the same patterns as tell. And you even have a few examples of leak somebody the information. He leaked journalists the minutes of the meeting. Interesting. Which is not common, but you can see how it's coming about by analogy huh. uh, with the other verbs that mean the same thing. So it is quite huh. a common thing. So you but have I'm, these patterns connecting to other words yeah. that have similar meaning. Interesting. Hmm. So another way I think about it that I think is actually quite important is that what happens is that the patterns classify the meaning of the word. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, that if you have um, a word will have a range of the, the meaning of a word is a kind of broad landscape. Right. And the pattern identifies which part of this landscape you're focusing on. Now, a good example of this is the word mistake. Mm. British English, it's used with four. You mistake one person for another. Mm -hmm. And other words that behave in a, sim in a similar way are words of exchange. So you exchange one thing for another, swap mm -hmm. one thing for another, mistake one thing for another. So it means that in varieties of English that do this, mistake is classified as a kind of exchange type word. Mm. So the action is an exchange type action. Right. In some varieties of English, mistake is used with as. Mistake one person as another. Now, to me, this sounds slightly odd, but it is, yes. it, it may, but trust me, in some varieties of English, this is what you say. Right. And this is, other words that are used in the same way are things like categorize, classify, mm. think of one thing as another. 
Um, and so what's happening there is that the action of mistaking is being reinterpreted as an action of misclassification rather mm. than an action of exchange. And actually, I think that makes much more sense. Right. So um, you could say that what those varieties of English are doing are to look at this word mistake and quite sensibly using it by analogy with categorize mm -hmm. or classify. Um, it's not how British English does it. But the, so my point really is that uh, the pattern selects the aspect of meaning that's going to be focused on. Okay. Another good example is the noun struggle. Hmm. Um, which when, it, when you're emphasizing the antagonism side of it will be used with prepositions like with or for hmm. or over. When what's being emphasized is the difficulty aspect of meaning, uh -huh. it's going to be used with the two infinitive struggle mm. to do something or it was a struggle to do something right um it's not that these are two different words it's that the meaning is classified as being slightly one thing or slightly another and i think what what it is with suggest mm. to come back to that oh one, okay is that because in english we don't say suggest me to do something we say suggest that yes we're somehow saying it isn't actually the same as advice. You suggest a proposition and that proposition may involve an action, mm -hmm. but you don't suggest an action. Now, it's, a, it's a subtle difference. Yeah. And, it is, and as I say, it is changing. Hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that now. I never thought about that that way. Because when you suggest, you're basically telling someone your ideas mm -hmm. about what they should do. So let's say Susan suggested that we read more about pattern grammar, mm -hmm. for example. That's, a, that's your suggestion. It doesn't mean I'm going to adopt it. But if you say advise, she advised me. Adv yeah, there is. <sighs> so advise is more like tell. Yeah. And suggest is less like tell. Would you say, Susan, that because advise has this I to me, advice has this nuance that you know more than they do about something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is that nuance. So I know more. I, you should listen to me. Suggest is like, I think it's just a good idea. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean I know more than you. Huh. Well, I think that's what the grammar is telling us. Right. Ah, interesting. <laughs> that's exactly what, this is the last part. This is the last part of our interview because I wanted to talk about this Lexis and grammar um, dichotomy. Um, something that has been, again, um, traditionally thought of as separate, right? It's, it's common in language teaching, especially with textbooks. Um, we have this dichotomy between lexis and grammar. Uh, they're treated as completely separate entities. Um, I think what in your view is the main disadvantage of this? What does it fail to take into account? Well, I'd like, I'd like to bring in here another former colleague, um, Dave Willis, because oh, oh. I, think he, I think he said this best, actually. 
he said that there are three kinds of grammar mm. of English. And there is a grammar of structure, which is things like subject-verb agreement, yeah. how you make a question, all those sorts of things. There is the grammar of, of orientation, which is getting the tenses and the uh or the the. The voice and all, yeah. And then there is the grammar of class, which is what kind of word are we dealing with? Mm. So this is partly, is this a noun or a verb? But it's also, he extended this to what patterns does this word have? So is this the kind of, does this word suggest belong to the class of verb that takes a to infinitive or not? Mm -hmm. Does mistake belong to the class of verb that takes as, or does it belong to the class of verb that takes for, and, and so on. And a lot of traditional grammar teaching focuses almost exclusively on the grammar of structure, which is necessary, but not sufficient. I agree. And then there's quite a lot that focuses on the grammar of orientation. Um, tenses, you know, past tense because you've given a date and right. all that sort of thing, which again, necessary but not sufficient. Um, and the grammar of class has been partly taught, um, but not a lot because until fairly recently, we didn't know a lot about it. Um, and so um, if, you, if the only thing you taught was pattern grammar, you would be missing out an awful lot of grammar. Yes. Because you'd be missing out the grammar of structure and the grammar of orientation. Mm. But similarly, if the only thing you teach is the grammar of structure, then you're missing out a lot. Wouldn't you say, Susan, that by learning the grammar of words, let's say the top 200 words in English, most important. Let's say, let's, let's say we focus on the most common nouns, the most common verbs in the top 50 adjectives, verbs, and nouns. Don't you think that by, by teaching the patterns with these words, or even with uh, some functional words, prepositions, and so on and so forth, don't you think that a lot of these words actually contain all the patterns that you would find in the grammar of structure and the grammar of orientation? Like you, you mentioned the example with Leo uh, Sullivan um, when he mentioned the thing about four. We normally learn four yeah. lends itself to the present perfect. So I don't know if you. Well, that that would be that would be and um, now is that orientation or structure? Um, <laughs> I guess it's orientation, isn't it? Because. Yeah orientate yourself around the forms yeah. so that would be the grammar of orientation um, hmm. because if you take that example I haven't seen him for ages there is nothing there is no connection between C mm. and four ages yeah. the four ages can attach itself to any old verb mm -hmm. it's not like I asked him for a biscuit right where ask somebody for yeah that's part of the verb that's something you need to know about the verb ask right hmm. okay so for ages then itself just the the structure for ages or the chunk for ages lends itself mostly to a present perfect structure mm -hmm. then hmm. well a perfect structure whether per past or present or past, yeah mm -hmm. yeah huh so 
I think the last question I have for you, um, in terms of Pat and Graham, we've been talking about this for, for a long time. Um, it's a lot of the critics of Pat and Grammar seem to take this view that it is somewhat unreasonable to expect learners to not only master these large amounts of vocab, but also master the grammar of, of uh, orientation, grammar, or so sorry, grammar of orientation, vocabulary. Don't, for them, it's also a lot for, for learners to come to terms with the grammatical structures and remember their patterns. I think the question is, how does pattern grammar seem to grapple with this issue? Uh, it, well, partly something that I mentioned before, which I think it can make vocabulary learning easier mm -hmm. um, because it does organize right. the grammar, uh, the, the, the vocabulary in, in, in a way. Um, I think it perhaps makes um, reading easier because if you encounter a word you haven't encountered before, but it's in a pattern that you're familiar with, then you can make an educated guess as to what mm -hmm. the word means. Um, I think, uh, again, what Dave Willis said, learning pattern is probably something that you do very gradually and that learners actually probably do in a sense by themselves and at their own pace. And I think what the teacher does is to um, introduce learners to the notion of pattern, encourage them to, to notice the pattern in the, when they are reading or, or listening to things um, so that they become more aware that this thing exists. And then the speed at which they acquire the um, particular patterns that they're going to need is probably up to each individual learner. Um, and they will, uh, you know, they'll get some of them wrong along the way. Right. Um, but again, at least there is the notion of what it is that people have got wrong. Because I think sometimes for um, a teacher, uh, a, a lot of this will be something like wrong preposition. Right. And so as a teacher, it can be a bit dispiriting, I think, to go through a whole load of work and say, this is the wrong preposition, this is the wrong preposition, this is the wrong, and, and with no rationale as to why it's the right preposition. Yes. Uh, as to what the right position would be. And I think if you've got the resources to say, well, look, this word is like these other words, mm -hmm. some of which you may know, um, then um, you can at least give, uh, uh, have, have some reason as to why it should be that preposition, not this one. Absolutely. I think that's what, I think that's the essence of pattern grammar is the idea that patterns are in fact the um, building blocks of language and as you said I think they really eradicate the the artificial divide that has been um, created between vocab and grammar which again leads to poor teaching on both on both mm -hmm. ends mm -hmm. I think one question that I wanted to ask you this is something that uh, um, one of our listeners has asked as well is where do pattern grammars fit within a syllabus 
that's perhaps one of the most difficult questions for teachers, for the practitioners, is most people are following a textbook where they're using a structural um, synthetic syllabus. Is it correct to assume, and this is something that I've heard, is that you can only teach pattern grammars if you are adopting a more analytical or lexical syllabus, or is that a misrepresentation of pattern grammar? Um, I would have thought, well, a few things about this. Um, some patterns have always been taught as part of, as part of regular English teaching. So infinitives, a good example of that. Yeah, all, all, all those things. So um, in a sense, it is simply an extension of those things. However, I think it would be a really peculiar syllabus that went pattern by pattern. Hmm. Um, you know, I've said there are 100 verb patterns, 50 noun, 50 adjectives, that's 200 weeks. I mean, that would be a really bizarre syllabus. <laughs> and I can't imagine anybody actually wanting to do that. However, if you've got a course book that includes reading passages, for example, mm -hmm. or listening passages, unless they are really bizarre reading passages or listening passages and very unlike natural English, assuming that they are reasonably naturally written, they will have right. a lot of these patterns in them and pretty much from the start. So whether or not the syllabus draws attention to these patterns, there's nothing to stop the teacher um, drawing attention to them themselves. And a very quick thing like, um, can you find an example of this pattern in this reading passage? Yeah, it's um, a good example. It's a good exercise. Uh, I very much like, uh, a bit nerdish in this respect, I very <laughs> much like the idea of rewriting sentences so that um, you give learners um, mm. uh, um, Perhaps make and let. A, 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 a prompt mm -hmm. and a pattern they have to fill, fit the oh, prompt to. I like that too. And um, then they're producing mm -hmm. a single pattern. Of, I, mean, I mean, it's not very naturalistic writing, it's just a series of sentences that have the same pattern, but it involves quite a bit of flexibility. Yes. In, um, in thinking. Huh. I like that. That's a good exercise. I'm thinking about an EAP context, Susan. I think this would be a very good activity for students to practice paraphrasing, um, mm -hmm. using different verbs. And, and again, I think the, what I really like about pattern grammar is that it encourages a lot of noticing. It develops learner autonomy. And mm -hmm. I think that's the ultimate goal of, of, of teaching. I, I believe that as teachers, it's not so much that we have to go into the classroom and teach the grammar of structure. And again, as you said, adopt a lexical syllabus and teach all these patterns um, in, in, in a year or two. Or, but I, it's more like the teacher is more of a guide. It's, as Bruce Lee used to say, a pointer to the truth that each student must find for himself. A good teacher is merely a catalyst. It's just really helping students really identify patterns, look for patterns, and as you said, being able to rewrite certain sentences using um, 
different verbs, which leads me to my last question. What kind of impact do you hope pattern grammar will have on the fields of language teaching um, and language education in general? Um, I, I think it has a lot of potential for impact on, um, on uh, EFL, on EAP, mm -hmm. um, in uh, encouraging materials that do encourage learners to um, explore patterns themselves. Um, I think it, it is one of the things that lends itself to, as you said, to learner autonomy, um, to learners uh, using corpora for themselves, some of the corpora that are available. Um, and one of the things we found is that if learners use a corpus, they only see the things they have been taught to see. Um, and so they often have difficulty observing patterns in the corpus unless they have been introduced to the notion of pattern mm -hmm. beforehand. So they don't need to have been taught every individual pattern. Right. But they have to have been taught, this is the sort of thing a pattern looks like when you come across a word and you want to know how to use it. This is the sort of thing to look for when you're looking it up in a corpus or when you encounter it in writing. Um, it seems to also be um, increasingly used uh, not in foreign language teaching, but in first language teaching as well. Um, we're doing some work in, in schools in Birmingham, and but particularly with young people who are sort of on the interface of first and second language, you know, the mm -hmm. home language is one thing, the school language is English. They've spoken English for years and years and years. Um, but uh, enhancing vocabulary and doing that within phrases and within patterned phrases, um, because there's a big emphasis on um, teaching language across the curriculum, right. writing across the curriculum. And we tend to think that these things we've been talking about in terms of patterns are things that native speakers of a language know automatically. And it, it's sort of the case, but not necessarily always the case. Yeah. And um, when teachers of geography or history or physics, whatever, are um, teaching new vocabulary, which they're encouraged to do, sort of how you do that is quite difficult for them. And saying, well, look, here are patterns and the new vocabulary will fit into the same pattern as the students know from the older vocabulary, mm -hmm. give them a hook to put the other, other so that they they can avoid having just individual words because they do they do this they put individual words on cards around the classroom, and the thing is that the word is just a word. Yeah, is if you can put it into a pattern, then you've reinforced the meaning of the word and linked it with other words that the. Um, mm -hmm. Learners know. Yeah, I, I think that sums up very well. As you said, I think it was in your book or one of your articles that I read recently when you said that patterns are not simply idiosyncrasies of form. As you said, they also have meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Susan Hudson, thank you very much for your time. This was a lovely conversation. 
I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I, I've learned a lot about pattern grammar. I, I promise you I'm going to try to finish this <laughs> baby here. It's, uh, it's, I, I, I'm still stuck on, on Sinclair and, and Gil Francis. And I, I'm I've, I find that when I'm reading, I usually deviate from the book for a while. And I do more research on something that you have um, described. And I learn more about that before I go back and proceed with, with my reading. But once again... Thank you for, for taking the time to, to be interviewed for our podcast. And do you have any, where, where can people find you? Where can people find more about your work apart from the pattern grammar? Um, well, it could go to my website if uh, on the University of Birmingham webpage. Uh, I'm there with an old, very old photograph. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I must say at the moment I'm working um, on several things, including um, pattern grammar and constructions, construction yeah. grammar, which is a, a whole new area. Okay. Um, but that's, interesting. Uh, that's going to be there on the website. All right. So are you on Twitter? Are you a I, I don't do social media, I'm no. afraid. Good um, for you. <laughs> always, <laughs> always happy to answer emails. <laughs> Okay, so if people want to send you an email, they, I will upload all that information on the podcast. Great. All right. Dr. Susan, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. I'll be not face-to-face, -face, but I'll be in Birmingham next year for my graduation. Excellent. I look forward to seeing you then. That'll be great. been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.